There are a lot of leaders out there that just talk and talk and talk at every meeting. That's not really my style. I like to listen to people、yeah. talk because one, I learn more that way, and two, I get a lot more insight about where they might need help or where they'd like help. Welcome to the First Threat Show of 2023. This week's special guest is Kathy Wang, a technology and business executive and the CSO of Discord. Kathy has worked in a variety of roles in her 20 plus years in the infosec and business fields, from security scientist to CISO to co founder, investor, and more. She gives advice for new and aspiring security leaders, talks about what early stage companies need to do to build their security infrastructure, and how to ensure that you have a diverse team. The team also discusses four major threats you need to know about. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Threat Show. I'm Robert Wagner, and with me, my hosts, Darian Kinlan and Chris Wilder. At the time you'll be hearing this, it'll be the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Also, as a special president, we've got Kathy Wang joining us today. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Kathy has a ton of experience over 20 years. Of InfoSec experience, and she's going to be sharing some of the wealth of her knowledge with us later on in the show. But to kick things off, Darian, we've got some fun stuff going out in the threat world this week, don't we? Right. You would think that it would be quiet, you know, for, for the holiday cycle, but no, that's not the case. We've got a bunch of vulnerabilities across a number of different very popular products, along with A、uh, tactic discovered by a Mandiant around sign malware. Go ahead. Let's talk about that Microsoft one first. What's going on there? Yeah. So basically, researchers that were taking a look at the original vulnerability that Microsoft released back in September focused on a vulnerability within the authentication mechanism of either Kerberos or NTLM. Discovered that there was actually more than meets the eye to this particular vulnerability. In fact, it was originally categorized, I think, as a medium or a high, but IBM X Force researchers said, no, it's actually potentially wormable. And、oh, wow. Yeah, basically, anytime you auth into a Windows system or Windows environment, you're having to use either Kerberos or NTLM as part of the pre auth step. This particular vulnerability could. Allow an attacker to remotely execute code on that target system, which means now any one of those protocols, either HTTPS, TLS, Samba, RDP, they're all at risk now. So if you have a Windows system directly connected to the internet, maybe now's the time to wrap it with something else to prevent this from happening if you can't patch immediately. Right on. And if you have RDP connected to, directly to the internet, just stop that. Just, just stop connecting RDP directly to the internet. Anybody still do that? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we, we saw a threat earlier this week that was still leveraging、uh, open RDP sessions,、uh, you know, and maybe some credential stuffing to get into it. But yeah, it, it's still a, a huge vector for a lot of the attacks that we're seeing. It's a nice back end, especially if you're trying to do obviously zero trust as well. So it's a nice way to connect. But you know, the thing that just drives me crazy about this one, and、uh, I think Darian, you and I have talked about this, is just the whole the lack of disclosure that Microsoft had. Joe Sullivan got into trouble because he, he undershared. I feel like I bring up Joe Sullivan every time we get on this call. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but it's really kind of one of those things that I think that I think as an industry, we need to really start putting some more guidelines and, and lanes for how companies need to disclose. And because it's it's all over the map. It's some people do two months, some people do four months. And Microsoft could have, I think, gotten ahead of this one. You know, a lot of times they choose not to because for one reason or another, a lot of times it's embarrassment and politics, those kinds of things. It, it is odd that IBM was able to find out how big of a deal it actually was. Microsoft's own research team aren't slouches. So I'm surprised they were on to something, but it sounds like they just didn't take it far enough. This kind of acts as a forcing function for a lot of CISOs to think about, you know, from a vulnerability management perspective, how often do you do you revisit old vulns that get reclassified, right? It's doesn't happen a lot, but when it does happen, it can be quite serious. I agree. And not only revisit old vulnerabilities, but a lot of different organizations haven't put in really good unit tests, you know, from a QA kind of perspective for regressions of vulnerabilities that have already been patched before that somehow happen again or surface again. That's an excellent point, Kath. Yeah, people need to constantly be not only uh, rescanning, but rechecking for these kinds of things. The good news is the patch is available. It's been available since September. If you haven't patched for it by now, you also probably need to revise your patch management program. So moving on to our next one, this is actually the 10th zero-day reported by Apple and its (laughs) Apple ecosystem. So the prediction came true. In any event, the vulnerability this time around is with WebKit. If you can, you know, manage to get a victim to visit a website containing the vulnerability, the attacker can then remotely execute any code they want on your Apple device. So that includes Mac OS, iOS, and all its flavors, tvOS, you name it. Uh, Thankfully, the patch is out. Uh, If you haven't done so already, Definitely would encourage you to apply that patch very quickly. And it'll be interesting to see what 2023 looks like with uh, this, this current set. I remember the good old days when you bought an Apple because nobody, they were unhackable. <laughs> now they're, it's you know, like everything else. It's, it's interesting because a lot of these CVEs that popped up on this one seem to be, they're building on each other. And they're building off of the different vulnerabilities and different methods and signatures and traits and kind of all the all the bits and guts. So I think you're right, Darian. We're going to see 11, 12, 15, 20. You know, Apple's no longer no longer the safest one out there. So They rolled out a new capability. I think it was the rapid security response feature within the Apple products with the mm-hmm. latest uh, iOS 16 rollout. We'll see if that actually makes a dent in any of the impacts related to these vulnerabilities in the future. Yeah, I, I think it will. It's just that, you know, I think the attackers out there are opportunistic. And if they're there for financial gain or, or some other reason, whatever the motive is, it's going to be tied to popularity of the platform as well, right? So if more and more people use iOS or Mac OS, that's where to target. If more people use Windows, more people use Linux, it, it doesn't matter what OS it is. It's just, I'm going to go after the one that is going to be most, you know, return on investment kind of value. <laughs> exactly. I, I remember even um, in, in many years past, you know, in pwn to own competitions and things like that, Apple would get pwned 
but it just wasn't a rich enough target. Like you said, Kath, uh, that they weren't going after them perhaps uh, as hard as they have been this year. You were very excited, Chris, that we actually hit 10, weren't you? I, I wish I had money on it, but, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting, Kathy. I think you, you made an interesting point. Demographically also, from a financial perspective, Apple users tend to be kind of more executive level folks, uh, creative folks, those types of things. So you get, you can get a lot of, you know, if you hit the Apple iOS or OS, you, you know, you're probably going to get somebody who probably has something and they're, you know, they're too lazy to, to not put their passwords into passwords and their credit cards into their, you know, save files and things like that. So I think it's, I think you're absolutely spot on with that. It's, but you're right. It is, it is a game of opportunity. I remember always go ahead and kick off the patches yourself. Don't wait for Apple's uh, mechanism to force your patch on stuff like this. You really want to go and manually check for updates right now and get those into your systems. So next on our list is actually a vulnerability discovered by the Pwn2 Own organization based in China, which is called GeekPwn. A bunch of security researchers over there discovered a VM breakout with VMware's platform. Specifically, if you've got admin level access to any code running inside a VM, that's enough to trigger this vulnerability to break out and start running code at the hypervisor level. Pretty nasty, affects ESXi down to VMware Workstation and all the other flavors in between. Wow. I know this isn't sexy, but I, I I do think that you know bring back the bug bug bounties because it's they're so they're so helpful and Pono is a great is a great resource in that regard. But you know a lot of it used to be a lot of the um, a lot of the CISOs in these very large companies would do bug bounties and they they would find the vulnerabilities in their in their systems. It's a you know that ongoing ongoing pen test on your on your software and your systems and they again the whole Joe Sullivan situation is making bug bounties more you know, sexy again. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing is just a lot of pr- proactive remediation. This is another, no, just another example in, in, a, in a checkbox why you need more. For those of you that are listening that don't know what a, a VMware escape really means for you, that this is, this is serious. So normally you're running within, you know, the, the, the virtual machine. Now you do have to have admin access uh, as Darian pointed out, to the system running in the virtual machine. But once this is executed and you've escaped the virtual machine up to the hypervisor, that means you're pretty much admin of every virtual machine that hypervisor is in control of. And that could literally be thousands of virtual machines. Yeah, it used to be 10 years ago, VM breakouts were rare and historic. Nowadays, it's it's getting to be a little bit more common and because of that, there's a lot more attention around not just running critical workloads in the same, like multiple critical workloads in the same hypervisor, but rather, you know, physically segmenting them because of issues like this or, you know, switching out different flavors of hypervisors as a mechanism to defend against these types of threats. There's obviously a lot more options now there nowadays than there were like 10, 15 years ago, but it's, it's still a big deal because, I mean, this mechanism was specifically designed as a sandbox to protect the rest of the system from any malicious code, right? And that failed. So right. it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I want to jump in here and just say, you know, there's a lot of wording here around CVSS severity ratings. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you just from experience, 
it is really tough for me to hear, you know, oh, it's a CVSS rating of nine. We absolutely have to deal with this right now because CVSS is intended as a guideline, right? As a starting point. And yeah, it could be a nine for you, but you have to triage this particular vulnerability within the confines of your organization and how you've configured VMware, for example. So if you haven't configured it the way that this particular way to exploit the vulnerability, maybe it's not a nine for you. Maybe it's a five. Maybe, you know. So I just want to caution that, yes, this is very serious if you've configured it exactly this way. But I've seen too many orgs say, hey, let's just base all of our security vulnerability, security postures on CVSS alone. And you cannot do that. You have to look at each one and triage it and figure out how this applies in the context of your organization. So do the appropriate research and testing it is what you're saying, yeah? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of mitigations here, right? You could, you you may not necessarily even have VMware products installed in production in your organization, right? Or another one could be maybe you've turned off all USB support within the VMs, in which case it's not an issue. So there's a couple of different ways to slice and dice this problem, but uh, it does require research. Absolutely. Great insight, Kathy. And uh, what's our last one here, Darian? Last one is actually a series of malware found by Mandian, now part of Google mm-hmm. Cloud, where they discovered a interesting threat group is now using signed malware to bypass binary authorization controls. What's interesting about this is that this particular threat group called UNC3944, they've now deployed enough malware that's been signed by a number of different compromised certificates that it's it's actually effective in achieving their overall objectives. And the part about this that's really stands out is just how easy it is nowadays for a threat group to acquire compromised certificates and sign their own malware to bypass binary authorization. In fact, when they started to dig through the the layers, they found that there's now an ecosystem of dark web services that offer compromised certificates so that you can sign your own malware very easily, which bypasses Microsoft's Windows Hardware Quality Labs certification process. So specifically, this is for this is targeting Windows environments specifically, but it's not a, a, any stretch of the imagination that it could also go after compromised certificates for the Apple ecosystem or a Linux ecosystem as well. So what this really means is for any anyone who cares about binary authorization, they have to kind of think twice about, okay, what are the certs that we're actually trusting? What are the certificate authorities that we're actually trusting? And can we narrow that down to minimize the, the damage mm. that this particular tactic can cause? I was going to say, so just like with the, the VM escape, this is something else that's just been growing by leaps and bounds. It used to be that a, a compromised certificate might happen once in a while, but now we're just seeing more and more of these uh, to, to the fact where we literally have a market to buy them. That just seems incredible. And it makes me wonder, well, what what are organizations uh, that control these certificates doing to make this harder 
to actually uh, to achieve to get these certificates and and uh, and leverage them. Yeah, it's it's not really up to Microsoft to prune their list of certificate authorities that are authorized to sign, you know, valid Windows binaries. But that is it's a tough proposition. It's very right. difficult yeah. for an ecosystem owner to police that environment. Clearly, they haven't really invested enough in tamping down on this, given that there's a whole ecosystem out there that's been able yeah. to. That's definitely very, very tough. Um, speaking as a CISO, it's every single time you're bringing in some sort of third-party vendor or other party to process or store your information, there has to be a security review done on that, depending on the sensitivity of the information that's being stored or processed. But, you know, putting a lot of trust in third parties is something we all have to do these mm. days. And it is a big problem for the industry, which is why we are now seeing a lot of, you know, software supply chain type vendors and also API security type products, because this is a real problem for most orgs. Certainly there must be a blockchain solution for all this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course there has to be. Blockchain right? fixes yeah. everything. Oh my God, so does Cowbell. But um, <laughs> so going to a, a category, a lot, of, a lot of our enterprise clients right now are, are investing heavily in TPRM systems, third-party risk management mm -hmm. systems. Yeah. And what's what's what we're finding is that uh, cybersecurity insurance guys and then also GRC, they're effectively pushing security alliance uh, alignment between the between third parties. So, you know, there's certain things you have to have, you know, you have to check these boxes within your organization if you want to come work with us. It's getting a little bit better. The challenge from our enterprise clients are that they, uh, a lot of times, so they wind up going off and acquiring the third party and pulling it in, or they'll go off and, you know, something goes completely wrong and they, they go away and then, and, um, and then now they've got, you know, they spent a lot of money, a lot of investment in into to putting those relationships together. But it's a, but it's, I think it's so important for to 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 have good, solid third-party risk management procedures, policies, and technology. The the other thing about these guys is a little research on this group is I knew I I knew I'd heard of these guys before. They originally started off doing uh, espionage in Southwest Asia, and so they've obviously they've evolved. But, uh, right. these, but they're using a lot of the same signatures, a lot of the same TTPs, all of that, you know, along the lines. And they look very, very familiar, but they're, but they're you know, they're, I think we're going to see them more, probably in the zero days for Apple. All right. Great burn down, Darian. Thank you so much. And thank everybody for their insight. If you want to dive deeper into this week's trending threats, be sure to check out the interactive Fletch newsletter and Trending Threats app to see all the stories we talked about, peruse the thread index at your leisure, and more. Now, on to our special guest interview. Now, let's introduce our special guest for this week, Kathy Wang. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Kathy has had an amazing, amazing background. She started off with a, a master's in electrical engineering. She has moved on through roles like security scientist, security strategist, 
director, CTO, CISO, co-founder, and investor. Welcome to the show, Kath. Thank you, Robert. Happy to be here. <laughs> That's been very interesting path you've taken. What got you all the way from doing like deep stuff like actual electrical engineering all the way to being a CISO and eventually an investor? Yeah, so I would say it's all related, right? In mm -hmm. EE, you're very much focused on solving problems critically, right? thinking critically about solving problems. And back then, I had a hardware background focused on semiconductors and chip design. And so the kind of programming that I did was more on the uh, Verilog and VHDL side of things. Right. And then I got my first security-related job, which is, you know, compiling and installing pluggable authentication modules on, you know, Sun microsystems machines. So oh, wow. as a Unix sysadmin, I did that kind of work. And that's what got me onto the software and security side. And I realized that, interestingly enough, if you're a chip designer for, say, Intel or AMD, you're one person on a team of like a thousand plus engineers trying to build the next generation chip. Right. Whereas in security is far less mature, right? So you can be a single person or a group of small number of people who can contribute a lot to the community, which is what then got me into the open source development side of things. And, you know, that was so much fun doing the research, figuring out where the gaps are, which is not difficult to do when you've already had to do a lot of critical thinking and problem solving before, right? right. So identifying the gaps, figuring out how to address it, writing some prototype code, getting that published, speaking about it. I loved all of that. And then going from the research side of things to more of the leadership side is because I realized that hey, I love to also help people grow in their careers. I would say that is the number one most rewarding thing about being a CISO is being able to coach and mentor other people who then eventually want to become CISOs themselves. And I'm proud to say I've done that for at least several people in my career. So that that's fantastic. Um so what kind of, along those lines what kind of advice would you give to folks that are either security leaders or want to be security leaders? Yeah, I would say you got to have a lot of compassion and empathy for other people. Be willing to put yourself in, into other people's shoes, figure out what they need, but more importantly, you have to be a good listener. Mm. Right. There are a lot of leaders out there that just talk and talk and talk at every meeting. That's not really my style. I like to listen to people yeah. talk because one, I learn more that way. And two, I get a lot more insight about where they might need help or where they'd like help. Right. Um, you can't do any of that without listening. So listening is super important. And then staying connected to your other like CISO peers in the community is, is mm. also super important because a lot of those other people will then later on potentially be hiring for first-time head of security type roles. Sure. So stay connected so that you can help introduce the people that you know that are ready to take on that role is a big part of it as well. 
And, and what ways do you stay connected to uh, other uh, security practitioners uh, and, and keep yourself involved? Definitely attend all of the industry events that you all know about, right? Those are great places to network. I also am part of several different Slack work groups that are focused on CISOs and, and other groups that I'm part of. And I'm also part of the SVCI syndicate, which is an angel syndicate where Silicon Valley CISO investors oh, wow. since 2020, that's when I joined. And being part of that group means a network of 60 CISOs that work together to identify really promising early stage security startup companies. And when I say early stage, it's like pre-series B. Oh, right? wow. So we'll look at seed round type series A, but series B would be getting really late for us, right? So staying in touch with all of those groups have actually opened up other opportunities to help the people that I mentor and coach as well. Gotcha. So you've seen security evolve over quite a few years. And now that you're actually working on the investment side as well, you're seeing brand new technologies just as they're coming out. What are the some of the serious things that you're seeing that are catching companies off guard as they try and put in a security program? Yeah, so I'm a technologist at heart, right? Look at my background, it's always been technical. I love hearing about the latest and greatest technology to address certain gaps. And I also spent years doing technical security product evaluations when I okay. was a defense contractor. So that gave me a lot of background and knowledge about gathering requirements and criteria and what to look for. So as part of that process, I do a lot of due diligence type work on early stage companies. And that includes not only figuring out what is this product doing? What type of gap is it addressing? What's the market go-to-market kind of strategy for this company? But also looking at the team, the founding team of the company, what has the track record been? What have they done in the past? What's the background? So it's a very, very comprehensive kind of look at the company that every place that invests in companies, I guarantee you they're doing this. Sure. Right. So it is a lot of work, but it's very well worth it. And it gives you a lot of insights on who the competitors are, what that greater landscape is for that type of product. So then you can bring that sort of knowledge into your practitioner mindset as a CISO, and you can maybe make introductions and take a look at the latest and greatest techniques to fight against the gaps that you have in your org. So right. I, I don't know if that fully answered your question, but <laughs> it's a very connected and yet still pretty broad area. Well, I, I know you had mentioned one of the places that you're seeing people kind of being caught off guard is in their software supply chain and or their API security, right? So what advice would you give to, and for especially a small organization, their product is more and more likely to be simply software. So how can those folks, especially if they are not familiar with the security concepts around APIs and around building software, how can they kind of jumpstart their program? Right. So a lot of companies are just not, as you said, they're not aware. They don't have the expertise to individually assess all of these different products that are being brought in by their 
sales teams, their marketing teams, their engineering teams, every team wants to use, especially if you're a cloud native company, right? Where all of your right. third party products are on someone else's SaaS, right? So then evaluating what is the risk profile for bringing this software in where you're going to store sensitive information in there is difficult. So I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity for vendors who build products that focus on doing deep dive kind of assessments on mm -hmm. data flow would come in. If I run this in my production environment, I'll be able to get a really good observability factor around all of the third-party apps that are currently enabled and running here and where they're taking their data sources from and where they're outputting data to, right? This is the, the type of mapping that is really, really difficult to do and requires not only knowledge of how to do it, but staffing. And we all know that there's been a lot of layoffs this year, right? It's just been lean security teams for the most part, right? So it's, it's an area that could grow more. The other one, the software supply chain piece of it that you're talking about, that's a very nascent capability that is being popularized right now by several different vendors, including ChainGuard and, and others, right? Where they're looking at solutions like maybe code signing, or, you know, maybe software bill of materials or SBOM mm. type of capabilities. But I think there's definite potential in that area as well, because part of the reason why SBOM doesn't necessarily work for everyone is because it takes a lot of resources and a lot of, you know, capabilities in order to build one properly. Sure. And a lot of earlier stage companies are just not at the maturity level to be able to do that. No, I 100% agree with you there. I think one of the biggest challenges, and I think one of the biggest opportunities for the folks that are in SBOM or ticker scanning or CICD in the CICD world is inventory. And if you don't know what you've got, you know, you, you're, really, you're really going blind. So there are some really good companies out there that are doing this. Companies like Resilient, I think I've talked about them in the past. They do a mm -hmm. really good job. Chainlink is another one. Um, Get Guardian is uh -huh. they're really kind of starting to move towards the SBOM side of the world. Um, they were originally doing vulnerability scanning and code uh, for secrets, but now they're moving very quickly because in these repositories, as everybody knows, there's a lot of garbage out there. And a lot of times people just put, don't even think about it, and they put credentials in their code and and throw back in the repository. 100% agree with Kathy. I feel like I'm sitting in your congregation right now. You know, <laughs> keep preaching. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an area that is going to see a lot of growth in yeah. the next definitely two to three years. I'm sure of it. I do want to go back to one thing you said earlier, and I just want to reiterate something when we were talking about kind of networking with CISOs and things like that. You absolutely nailed it. And uh, the only thing I would iterate more is for every young CISO, get a coach. Get a coach that can help you talk you through a lot of the day-to-day -day cruddy stuff that happens when you're a CISO, especially if you're one that came up through the ranks or if you're, you know, your first time CISO, get a coach. And it's so important. I think, you know, I think you, you, you sound like you've done a really great job of nurturing a lot of young careers and while you're building your own and then investing into the future of a lot of these great, great entrepreneurs who a lot of times don't even know how to speak to each other. So <laughs> I commend you for that. So. 
I wanted to yeah. take that shot, but I had, you know, I had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely sound advice, Chris. Yeah. It cannot hurt you to get a coach, right? It's only going to help. Just real quick, one of the resources yeah. we have a tag, and we don't pay, for, we don't charge for it or anything like that. But for CISOs specifically, we do a basically either we typically do it every two weeks, sometimes monthly, um, a CISO lecture kind of series. So we'll go through different things that CISOs have to do. It's put on by Ed Amoroso, which was our, our CEO and former CISO at uh, AT&T. And he does these NYU style sessions on things like third-party risk management, best, you know, they best practices. And we, we get typically about two, 300 CISOs on the, on these things and they go back and forth. And it's, it's kind of like a, kind of like an AA group or a support group for, uh, for CISOs. But the content is great. We don't charge for it. We're just looking at, you know, putting back, putting some purpose back into it. So if anybody wants to, to go to these and you're a CISO, that's just, Robert, we can just have people reach out to me. So, Oh, yeah, that would be absolutely fantastic. And we'll, we'll have contact information through LinkedIn. All of our profiles are out there on LinkedIn. Kathy, I know you're a, a big fan of automation as well. When I, when I think of a lot of our listeners who are from smaller enterprises, I think it's even more critical for those folks to start looking into automating either processes or you know certain aspects of security. Where are you seeing the biggest wins with automation as far as organizations go and where can a small company get started? Robert, that's really, really great that you raised that point. For small companies, the teams are very lean. Mm -hmm. So it's not a good idea to scale the team by doing things manually, right? That can never happen. Luckily, there are now pretty good tools out there to help automate a lot of these security type tasks that would typically be done manually and can now be automated. For example, when it comes to security policy, you should never write a security policy that you cannot programmatically enforce. Because if you cannot programmatically enforce it, then what does that policy mean to anyone? Right. right? Probably nothing. It's just a piece of paper. So you have to programmatically enforce it. And then the other thing is when you do enforce it, let's do it through, say, SIM. Right, You put all of your audit logs and all of the information relating to your policy. For example, if you're going to have a policy that says, you know, only these types of groups can gain access to this particular environment, well, then let's build automation to constantly check on violations to that policy and take care of it programmatically so that you're precious few people are not spending their time logging into some system and then manually disabling things, right? right? So one way to do that is to use a SIM that can integrate with an automation security incident response or XOR type of product. Mm -hmm. So XOR is not new, right? Like back, I remember even when I was at Splunk, right? There was Demisto and, and other vendors out there already sure. for XOR type capabilities, but you really need to take a look at something like Tines or, or something like that, right? And tie it into your SIM so that, for example, if you have a policy that says Google Workspace documents cannot be made public, mm. and somebody does that by accident, which is surprisingly easy to do, 
even when you know just for people being unaware, that audit log then feeds into a sim. And then there's automation tied into that to automatically go into Google Workspace and make that document not public. Right? That's just one example. But normally a lot of teams would do that manually. Once they see the alert, it's like, oh, what is this? Has this actually happened? Does someone with you know super user admin access to Google Workspace go in there and make it not public? You still have to investigate, but at least you can at least automate a lot of it. So a lot of our uh, listeners don't even have a SIM, right? They're, they're, they're too small to get above that. That's one of those uh, InfoSec poverty level uh, things, right? <laughs> Where, um, if you're not among the InfoSec poverty line, you may not be able to afford one, but you can still do some automation. I mean, a lot of these companies, like you said, are cloud first. So automation right within the products themselves, right? You can leverage automation right inside of AWS, um, right inside of Google to start doing some of these things based on the built-in security features that those cloud environments have, right? And, and, and that is actually one of the things that Fletch tries to do is pull all those together without having to build out a full-fledged SIM for companies like that that don't even know where to begin. So we have just a little bit of time left. I wanted to get to something near and dear to your heart as well. As we know, diversity in InfoSec has been a struggle, but you've got some great insight on how InfoSec and InfoSec leaders can actually start doing better in diversity within their teams. What, what kind of advice can you give there? Yeah, so the first advice I would give there is if you're looking to hire a more diverse team, you have to have your interview and your hiring processes tuned to be friendly for a more diverse audience. Having job descriptions that say, we'll only hire people who can do all of these things, that's probably not good. Because we, <laughs> we know that most women, for example, tend to underestimate their abilities. Mm. And most men tend to overestimate their abilities, right? <laughs> so do not make people feel like they have to meet 100% of every bullet point criteria in order to even apply to this job. But that's, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for people who also have the ability to learn mm -hmm. and do well and have a strong bias to action and is passionate about what they do. All of those things are, are important in a security career. So say nice to haves, not must haves, right? right? And then the other thing is for a woman, if you're interviewing and you've now interviewed with like six people in a panel and not a single one of them is a woman, that sends a certain kind of message, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. It's not very welcoming in some ways as well. And right. there are a lot of women out there that don't want to be the first woman on a whole team of men. And then there's a lot of women out there that don't even want to be the second one. So <laughs> you have to kind of think about it this way. As you build more critical mass, getting mm -hmm. more diversity in, you will see an uptick in people applying that are in more diverse pools. Right. So it's very hard to get started, but mm. to get started, you need to get your JDs, job descriptions, you need to get your hiring process, interview panels and all of that uh, down pat, right? So you could get started and then things will kind of snowball from there. Gotcha. 
That's that's great insight, and and, and thank you for that. It's uh, probably a lot of things a lot of people don't even think about, right? Um, and uh, and yet it's uh, it, it some of that leaves an impact that you didn't even realize, um, and until you hear someone like you tell about it from their point of view, so. That's hugely appreciated. Chris, I know your company uh, also is really big on diversity as well, right? Yeah, we, we sure are. I think we, we, we joke a lot, uh, Tag, about, you know, this, this entire industry needs a renaissance of marketing messages and creativity and <laughs> diversity. <of thought. laughs> and so we do talk a lot about it. It's really because I think it's so important that, you know, people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different, they, they view problems you know, because, uh, you know, Kathy made a comment earlier about having, you know, being doing all the critical thinking. They view problems very differently than a lot of other people. And the only way that you're going to be, take, you could go after these criminal organizations, which is what they are, is you've got to either think like them or be able to think like them. And so that's, that's, that. so you've got to have that, that diversity of, of experience. And in cybersecurity of all places, it's, it's more important now than ever. So, you know, we, we, so used to be guys that came out of a came out of the military, went to work for the NSA or CIA, got out and they became security folks. And now it's completely different. It's it's game on. And yeah. So well, I'm glad we have here. leaders like Kathy uh, in the industry <laughs> leading that way. <laughs> thank, yeah. thank you, Kathy, for that. I really appreciate it. Of course. And with that, I, I think we're at time. Thank you to, to everybody for a wonderful insight today. And we'll see everybody on the next episode of The Threat Show. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.